Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you. The Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. wickingvicar.com. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 24 on the Mass. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Larry Bean. He is pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana. He's also chaplain and teacher with Wittenberg Academy, and he is also a Civil Air Patrol chaplain and editor at Gottesdienst. Pastor Bean, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you, Sean. It's so good to be back. Yeah. It's been quite a while since we had you on, but we did have you on talking about matters of Adiaphora and how we understand that. We had you on with Chaplain Sean Denzer, and great to have you on as a solo episode here to talk about something that, obviously, uh, being editor at Gottesdienst, the Mass is definitely something that you care about and do a lot of work on, and so it's a, it's a real honor to have you on here. Like I said, it's it's really great to be here. It's a great topic to discuss and so timely. Yeah, so as we get in here then, Let's go ahead and set this up. Usually we'll, we would just jump into reading and then begin discussing it. But this article is a little longer and we're going to kind of break it up and review some of those things as we go. And I think especially for this article, it's really kind of helpful to set up the context of this article. How does it fit in with the Augsburg Confession? What's the purpose of its placement here as Article 24? And then also even there, you know, I think we can already bring into, again, as you said, you know, so timely how this fits in with our confession even still today, and then we'll get into reading the article and wrestling with some of those things as we go through it. So go ahead and set that up here for us. Well, maybe just to sort of get the big picture, thinking about the overall purpose of the Augsburg Confession. I know you've been going through it, but it's always good to kind of reflect on that. At the time, we so-called Lutherans were being lied about as to what we believe, teach, and confess. And uh, mainly our Roman Catholic opponents were lumping us together with all of the other reforming groups and then calling us heretics and uh, using the name Lutheran, of course, to push that narrative. And so when the emperor gave the opportunity for the so-called Lutherans to issue a confession at the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, they took full advantage of it. And the Augsburg Confession is a masterful document. And it basically, it is a collection of 28 short articles 
And the first 21 articles are articles of faith. In other words, this is what we believe as Catholic Christians. So what you've heard that we're heretics is not true. We are Catholic Christians, and here's why. And so it was to refute false teachings or rumors about what we actually confessed. But Articles 22 to 28 kind of drill down into more specific issues. Seven really important issues of the day that were controversial and what the so-called Lutherans were doing about them in our churches. And so Article 24 falls in that group because we did make some changes to the Mass and it clarifies what those changes are, but it also clarifies what those changes are not. And when you consider how little was changed in the liturgy of the divine service, it makes a lot of sense that we're really, mainly Article 24 is to say, you've heard rumors that we've abolished the Mass and we've gotten rid of our traditional ceremonies and we don't really believe in Holy Communion. Well, that's not true because this is truly what we believe. So it's more about what we didn't change than what we did change. Yeah. And again, too, as we take a look at this, that's a really helpful understanding to understand. As we've seen several times here, I think this article the most puts the emphasis on we are falsely accused of this, right? But we've definitely seen it previously in the Augsburg Confession that, you know, you've claimed that we do this, but that's not actually true. That's somebody else and things like that. And so as we see that kind of distinction, if you will, here of these are the things, the changes that we made, the things that we got rid of. Um, you know, we make the point all the time that we are not, you know, kind of basically the rest, uh, the reformed and so forth, that threw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will. But we did get rid of some things. And so then also being clear about what we retained. And we're definitely going to see that highlighted. Uh, because you brought it in already earlier, too, of it being a timely thing. I think it's good to go ahead and get into some of that too. How is that still timely for us today as we set that up getting into it here? Well, especially we've had, what, a half a century now of some pretty hard-fought worship wars in the Lutheran world, especially in the Missouri Synod. And so, you know, going back to the fundamentals, going back to the basics, ad fontes, to go to our own confessions, what is it that we say in our own confessions about worship? And that's really what Article 24 is. It's about worship. It's about liturgy, ceremonies, what we retain, what we believe should have been and was gotten rid of from the pre-Reformation times. And, and worship really should be a unifying force. And it was for a long, long time. I mean, uh, you know, there was no such thing as contemporary worship until, you know, the modern, uh, you know, post-1960s radical changes in society in the 1960s. And so it's a good explanation of why we worship the way that we do, why it's important, why the continuity from the past is important and the benefits that it bestows upon us. So it's, it's extremely timely. I, when I reflect on just like the first few sentences of Augsburg 24 and its corresponding article in the Apology, it's just amazing how many controversial topics. It's like bowling, you know, you hit, instead of just hitting one pin, you're hitting 10 pins with one stroke, you know, and it, it really does, it behooves us to review and to discuss within the context of our shared confession, because that is something that we all, all pastors make vows at our ordinations and all of our congregations, it's included in our constitutions, in our confession as Lutherans, that this is really what we believe. So it, it's a wise thing for us to review it often and, and to reflect on how, 
how accurate we are to what our confessions are. Yeah, and I think really important to have that framed for us as we go into it. You know, a lot of times on this show, especially as we've been going through the Augsburg Confession here, we kind of hold off the contemporary applications, if you will, until the end, you know, how, do, how does this confession still matter for us today and so forth. But I think particularly with this article, as you frame there so well for us, that as we enter into it, we recognize there was a lot of intentional thinking in the confession here of why we are getting rid of the things that we are and keeping the things that we are. And that's going to be very formative for us at all times. I, I might push on you a little bit there, though, and just say that contemporary worship has existed for a while. I agree that, you know, really since the 1960s and change in society and so forth, that term became more. But, you know, just also in setting this up, a lot of the things that we get rid of are actually contemporary innovations, if you will, that the Roman Catholics introduced into the Mass that are not, well, those certainly not scriptural in many cases, but then also. They're not even what the, the church fathers and the ancient church had practiced and so forth. They're more recent innovations. So again, kind of contemporary worship, if you will, thinking of that in that sense, those are some of the things that we push back on. And so I think that's a helpful frame for us as well as we enter into that there. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And the word innovation is actually in the article. So it's, it's a, that's a great point of reference. Yeah. Let's go ahead and get into the article then too, especially as you, you know, mentioned those first few lines there. I'll take the first nine lines here or so. And as we read this, of course, a reminder that on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord available to you from Concordia Publishing House, publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 24 from the Augsburg Confession on the Mass, the first nine lines. Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass. The Mass is held among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns. These have been added to teach the people. For ceremonies are needed for this reason alone, that the uneducated be taught what they need to know about Christ. Not only has Paul commanded that a language understood by the people be used in church, they cite 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2 and 9, but human law has also commanded it. All those able to do so partake of the sacrament together. This also increases the reverence and devotion of public worship. No one is admitted to the sacrament without first being examined. The people are also advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament, about how it brings great consolation to anxious consciences, so that they too may learn to believe God and to expect and ask from him all that is good. This worship pleases God, citing Colossians 1 verses 9 through 10. Such use of the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God. Therefore, it does not appear that the Mass is more devoutly celebrated among our adversaries than among us. All right, thus far, Article 24 from the Augsburg Confession on the Mass. All right, Pastor Bean, a lot jam-packed in there. Really, we could just do a whole show on that first paragraph, but we're going to endeavor to get through all of this here. But a couple things to lay the foundation here. You pointed to a few things already in the first few lines. Uh, one that I specifically want to highlight to have you cover, and, and then you can bring in other things as well, is I think it's always good to identify our terms. And, you know, kind of one of the things that has happened to us of more recent vintage is just a lack of understanding of a term like the mass and that we as Lutherans would use it and include it here in our Lutheran confessions and so forth. So help us understand that term and then what they're confessing here about the mass as they set it up here in the first paragraph. 
Sure. The term has a funny origin in the old Latin liturgy. At the very end, after the benediction, the pastor would say, ita misa est in Latin. And it's, a, it's an expression. I mean, there's, there's no really good way to translate it literally. It basically means we're done now. Y'all can go home. And misa, you can hear the word dismissed in there. So it's a dismissal. And for some reason, that little word became an image of the whole service. So people started referring to the service as the misa. And so that comes into English as mass. That's where we get that. And the thing is, is that, you know, we Lutherans use a lot of Latin because during the Reformation, that was the Esperanto of the day. It was the international language. It was the language of theology of educated people. So a lot of theological discourse is in Latin. Luther wrote a lot in Latin, but also we use German because obviously the Reformation happened in Germany. So it's kind of funny being a Lutheran is kind of like being an English speaker because in the English language, all of our words, almost all of our words come from either Latin or German. And that's why we have two ways to say just about everything in the English language, a Germanic way and a Latinate way. So our book of Concord is written in both German and Latin. Each article was either written in one or the other and then translated into the other. So it's a bilingual book actually. And so the German term is Gottesdienst, and that means divine service. So in other words, mass and divine service are the same terminology. They're the same word. It's just one is Latinate and one is Germanic. But the word mass can have a broad understanding or a narrow understanding. And this is where some people kind of trip up on it. And this is very important. If you understand this, you won't get tripped up on it. It can be used very broadly and is used broadly in many places in the Book of Concord, particularly in the Augsburg Confession and the Apology. It's used in a very broad sense to mean the liturgy of the worship service that includes Holy Communion, you know, the chief service. And so it's either mass or divine service refers to that. It can mean also just the service of communion. You know, in, in the LSB Lutheran service book, we have the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. So the mass, you could use it more narrowly to mean just that portion of the service where the sacrament is served, or it can even be used in a more narrow way, which Luther does in the small called articles to refer to a portion of the service, which was called the canon of the mass, which is a part of the service that was really objectionable. It wasn't a Roman innovation and it's filled with false doctrine. So in that context, in the small called articles, Luther says the mass is bad. Well, at the beginning of the small called articles, he explains the context. When he uses the word mass in that context, he means it narrowly for that particular segment of the divine service. He's not saying communion is bad or the liturgy is bad. He's saying a portion of it is. So it is important to understand that. So basically, the Augsburg Confession is using the word mass as a synonym for the divine service, for the liturgy, for the order of worship that includes both word and sacrament. So that's really what we're talking about. And so paragraph one says, our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the mass. Well, the reason for that is there were reforming groups that did abolish the mass, that just got rid of the liturgy, that got rid of Holy Communion, essentially reducing it to a symbol, for instance, rather than believing in the real presence. And so, you know, this, it's kind of funny because generally Philip Melanchthon, who wrote the confession, is usually really 
Uh, he's a peacemaker, a bridge builder. He's very gentle in his language. He's not bombastic like Luther, but sometimes you get little flashes of anger. And this, I find the tone of this one is a little more strident than Melanchthon is with other things that he writes. He's saying, look, you're saying we've abolished the mass. We're angry about this because it's not true. You're lying about us and you need to stop it. That's kind of the tone, at least to my ears, is what it sounds like. Yeah, I definitely agree. You talked about Luther being kind of bombastic in his writing and so forth. Uh, I, I say that Melanchthon is a lot more sly and you see this more in the Apology than the Augsburg Confession. He's definitely a lot more conciliatory and so forth in the uh, Augsburg Confession itself. But the Apology is a lot more sly, kind of backhanded remarks and so forth. Very educated re remarks towards them as well. Very heady stuff there. But but yeah, I think he's. this is one of those places and it fits in with these remaining articles, right? That these are the main things that, you know, needed reform and needed to be addressed as we've been talking the last couple of weeks on now and so forth. And so when he comes out and he nails this, you know, yeah, we are falsely accused of abolishing the mass. And also, I think that's a helpful distinction that you laid out for us and does sometimes trip people up in misunderstanding what Luther talks about in the small called articles that is bad, the canon of the mass. But here, when we talk about it kind of in the broad terms of, yeah, this is the liturgy of the church, he then follows that up with basically describing what makes up that liturgy, right? The ceremonies and the Lord's Supper kind of lays those out and also states the purpose of those. And again, when we have that right understanding of the Mass, and so excellent job laying that foundation for us, it helps us understand why we would retain this. So get us into some of that as well, the things that are retained here with the Mass and the purpose that they serve. Sure. But actually, I did want to say one more thing about line one, about the highest reverence. Um, that's also part of what we've been accused of, of being irreverent and throwing things, ceremonial things out. And that's not us. Other people did that, but not us. And I love that in the Latin, it's summa reverentia. It's a beautiful turn of phrase, the highest reverence. I mean, that's setting the bar very high. Lutheran worship is not flippant or casual. It is of the highest reverence. And that's a, such an important word, reverence, how we react to God being present. It's a term of practical theology. To be reverent is how you behave in the real world. It's not a theoretical thing. It's based on theology, but it's lived out. You live out the life of the liturgical life by being reverent. And so here we get to the ceremonies, the preservation of the usual ceremonies. Nearly all of the usual ceremonies are preserved. And he does list, okay, what did we make exceptions on? It mentions that we've added some German hymns. Hymnody had become, had basically almost fallen into disuse during the Reformation. And of course, music is powerful and it's a beautiful confession. Uh, was it Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. So the Lutherans, rather than create innovations, they actually brought back an older way of worshiping, an older way of being a Catholic Christian that includes hymnody. And the hymnody was in German. And they're going to get into this in a little bit why. You know, at the time, all services had to be in Latin. It was a canon law sort of thing. And so we began to move towards the vernacular language because although people in Wittenberg spoke fluent Latin, people around the countryside of Germany didn't. And so the important part is to hear the word of God and understand it. So we began to see that being brought into the discussion, the linguistic argument there. 
Uh, but the point of ceremonies is to teach the people. There is a catechetical element here of teaching. And in fact, if you flip over, well, if we, I'll just do a spoiler. The very first line in Article 24 of the Apology, which sort of drills down and gives further explanations, it mentions that the ceremonies are there to teach the people what they need to know about Christ. So the, the ceremonies of the liturgy of the church are catechetical. They teach, they teach the word of God, but not just teaching like, you know, the silly things about legends of saints or what have you. No, we're teaching about Jesus. It is Christocentric and Christological. And that's, again, that's the beauty of why we've kept the liturgy, why we didn't monkey with it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's not broke. It confesses Christ and it teaches the people what they need to know about him. So this lays out why ceremonies are really important. And when people hear the word adiaphoron, you know, that we do have liberty in terms of ceremonies, they get it in their mind sometimes. It's like an anything goes. I mean, you do what you want, I'll do what I want, and we don't have to have any unity about it. But if you understand that the purpose is to teach the people what they need to know about Christ, then it, it's a, a matter of highest importance, summa reverentia. It's a matter of extreme importance that we be reverent and we be clear in what we're teaching the people in our confession of Jesus, who he is, what he does for us. Yeah, I like that you highlight reverence there. And one of the things that I've noticed in my pastoral ministry, and you've probably seen this as well, is that, you know, as our Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, for whatever reason, and, and we could just do a whole nother show on maybe some of the reasons why we've kind of had drift from, and it's probably related to the worship wars and things like that, but drift in terms of reverence in our worship and some of the practices of, of how we conduct the liturgy and things like that. Um, there's a resurgence and they're teaching it at the seminaries now and things like that of recovering some of these things so that one, we'd be faithful to our confessions, uh, you know, that we have not abolished the mass and that we still do not to this day. But as we recover that, you know, a lot of the pious practices and reverential things that we do within the liturgy sometimes catch our people off guard. But I've often noticed in my pastoral ministry that it does exactly what we say here that it teaches them what's really going on here and confessing Christ as we do it. So kind of the examples I like to give are, you know, it's an old practice. A lot of older folks were very familiar with this, but then it kind of fell out of this use that at the beginning of the sermon, when I give the text, you know, I repeat a part of the text and so forth, that that's the words of Christ. And so you stand up for it, right? And so they kind of get all grumbly because, you know, they got to stand back up out of their pew and things like that. And, you know, why are we doing this and so forth? And I just sit there and I'll say, you know, well, what do you think about that when you have to stand up, you know, take the energy to stand up back out of your pew? And they're like, well, that it must be important, I guess. And it's like, right. <laughs> See, that taught you. Or the other one I always like to use is, you know, that I genuflect when I say the words of institution. Well, what does that teach? Well, obviously that we're in the presence of the King of Kings, right? And that this is his true presence here. This isn't just mere bread and wine. And again, I always give the example too that, you know, I've observed that as we've kind of abandoned some of those reverential practices within our, the ceremony of the church, that what we have adopted are sometimes those reformed thinking of things, right? I know a lot of Lutherans that don't actually even recognize what we confess as the true presence there in the Lord's Supper just simply because we're so casual around it, right? And that kind of has happened in there. So I think these things do fit together, and it is important that we have the highest reverence throughout the entire 
mass also in what they teach and confess about that as well. Yeah, I think it's a great juxtaposition. You use the word reverence and casualness kind of in opposition to each other. And I think that's a lot of the origin of our problem. You know, I I used to do computers before I got into ministry. I'm a second career guy. And so back in the 80s and 90s, I was a consultant and it was an interesting cultural time because when I got first got into being a software consultant, I mean, we wore suits. You know, I worked with IBM as a consultant and you wore a suit and a tie. But then they, they started to introduce casual Friday. And uh, at first it was really novel. It's like, oh, you know, I can, I don't have to wear a tie, you know, and then they, oh, I can wear blue jeans. And it, it sort of changed the atmosphere. It had some good things and it had some bad things. And then, and you know, and I used to be, spend a lot of time in airports and it used to be in the airport, you know, people were well-dressed, usually a lot of business travelers and so forth. But then over time, it's really now to the point where you go, you go to the airport. I mean, you're in the, on a plane or in the airport, people are wearing pajamas and flip flops and yoga pants. And I mean, they're dressed so slovenly. And I think it does kind of have an effect on the behavior too, because I mean, it would have been unthinkable when I used to fly for a living that there would be a fist fight or people using profanity on an airplane. It would be absolutely beyond imagination that such a thing would happen. And now it's almost like, that's kind of like your live entertainment. You know, if you fly Spirit Airlines or something like that, you know, if you go on uh, YouTube, you can see all these. It's horrible. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's not really funny. And in the context of worship, reverence is both a confession that Jesus is really here. Because again, if your boss is there, you're going to behave differently than if your boss is not there. Um, you know, I'm a chaplain in Civil Air Patrol. We follow all the military courtesies. And so when our commander walks into the room, someone calls the room to attention, we snap to attention until he tells us that we are at ease. So it's a show of respect and it's a show of acknowledgement that yes, the boss is really here. The commander is really here. Jesus is really here because we stand for the gospel and we kneel for the sacrament and we make the sign of the cross and we're not casual. We're not goofing off. We're vested differently. Pastors in the chancel. And it's both a confession and it is a teaching. It's teaching. And especially, I love it when people bring their little ones to the rail, when I'm communing them, the little ones are seeing, they're observing, they're watching, they're drinking it in. They see mom and dad reverently receive this host and this chalice and make the sign of the cross. And, and they, you know, they pick up on these cues, even as very, very little kids, we are catechizing the little ones, even when they're babies in arms. And so if we're behaving casually when we're taking communion or when I'm administering the sacrament or when I'm consecrating the elements, the way that we do that is as important as the right words that we say. And I want to be careful when I say that I'm not saying you can use the wrong words, not at all. We must use the right words. But if I'm conveying, this is my body, that this is the word of Jesus and it's true. But if I'm casual, if I'm joking around when I say it, or I'm just rushing through it, like as a rote exercise, I'm saying one thing with my words, but I'm communicating something else with my body language and my tone. And Studies are really clear about this. It's actually like 60% of communication is nonverbal and comes from gestures. And that's why these ceremonies are so important. The sign of the cross is important. It's done at certain points in the liturgy to teach and to confess. 
And it's all about Jesus. So why in the world would we ever abolish these ceremonies? What we need are more of them. We need to revive old ones that have fallen into disuse because they are all a confession and a way of teaching the people what they need to know about Christ. Absolutely. And I like how you highlighted the example that it sets for our children and that it orients them towards Christ. You know, I, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn. And I can tell you my three-year-old and two-year-old already know. And people comment on this in our church all the time, right? They're like, oh, pastor, your kids are so respectful and reverent in worship. And you know, they're so well-behaved. You know, They usually say well-behaved. I, I say respectful and reverent, right? Mm-hmm. But they'll point out that and you talk to my three-year-old and two-year-old, they know it's different than like when we go to a restaurant, which is rare because they don't necessarily act all that great there, right? Uh, but they know that this is different. And why? Because we have created that atmosphere in the way that we approach it and the way that we conduct it. And then they play church too, right? Yeah. And I mean, play in the highest, you know, reverential way. Sure. Like my three-year-old tells his two-year-old sister to kneel, you know, <laughs> and he kind of, you know, make believe does the communion and so forth. They know these things. And these things are already forming them and shaping them towards the confession of our faith that Christ is truly present here. You are in the presence of the King of Kings, and you act differently than you do in the rest of society. All right, uh, so much to talk about here. We're going to take a break here now. On the other side of the break, we're going to endeavor to push forward and make it through uh, this long article. But uh, so many great things to talk about here. As I always say, we'll run out of time probably. But great conversation here with our guest today, Pastor Larry Bean. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. The life of the Christian church is a life in exile. We are grieved by various trials. False teachers and their deceptive teachings wage war against the truth. How can we believe and live as faithful and joyful Christians while we sojourn here? This is Pastor Timothy Apple, host of Sharper Iron. We're starting a new series, The Imperishable Inheritance. We will be going through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Join us every weekday morning at 8 on KFUO to rejoice in the imperishable inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Larry Bean today. He is pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana. He's also a chaplain and teacher with Wittenberg Academy, and he's also a Civil Air Patrol chaplain and editor at Gottesdienst. And as you laid out there for us, Pastor Bean, uh, when we're talking about Article 24 from the Augsburg Confession on the Mass here, Gottesdienst, uh, your editor for great resources, both online and magazine, they're available to talk about a lot of these things. So we're going to run out of time, as I said before break. Um, just <laughs> it's, it's the nature of thing, but there's so much wonderful things to talk about here. Uh, so many wonderful things to talk about here. Go ahead and finish out this first paragraph for us, at least hitting a few more things there, really kind of picking up with line six there about being examined with regard to the sacrament, being taught and advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament. And that this brings consolation to anxious consciences. We highlight that, you know, that's just so heavy here in the Augsburg Confession. But really a lot going on here, but just hit a few more of these things here for us uh, as we push forward here in Article 24. Sure. Um, in the Apology 24, the very first part, it kind of restates this the whole thesis here. And it does mention that masses are celebrated among us every Lord's Day and on the other festivals. And it mentions there that after people have been examined and absolved. And back to the Augsburg Confession, Article 24, it mentions this business of examining as well. 
this goes to show you that we just don't invite anybody and everybody to communion. We do practice closed communion. That is the historic practice of the ancient church, and that is our practice in continuity with the ancient church. We want to make sure that people confess what we confess. And also the idea that we celebrate the Mass, the Holy Communion, every Sunday. Um, this is something that, that has fallen into disuse among Lutherans for various reasons. There's a lot of theories about it, but whatever the justifications have been in the past, we need to get over that and get back to following our confession because it's important that we should take Holy Communion every week. So it's interesting in Article 24, we have every Sunday communion, we have closed communion being taught here as well. And then um, in verse seven, the people are also advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament. And, it, and there is, again, dignity and a sort of a, another way of saying reverent. These are all reminders of what our worship ought to look like on Sunday morning and whenever we do gather for the sacrament. Yeah, and I also want to highlight again there, too, that, you know, and it brings great consolation to anxious consciences. And that is a constant refrain in the Augsburg Confession here. But I think especially in this context, it's really, really important because you talked about celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday, practicing closed communion, and being advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament, having that reverence there. And I think that especially in our times these days, you know, we tend to think about those things, especially pastors like yourself and myself, right, that encourage these things and teach these things with our people and, and practice them in our congregations. Uh, a lot of times what gets thrown at us is, oh, you're just being legalistic and, you know, those yeah. sorts of things. And it's like we're trying to burden the people with this. And it's like, no, not at all. Right. <laughs> this is definitely I mean, the Lord's Supper is entirely about the consolation of the conscience. So we're not trying to burden you with anything. We're simply trying to give you more of a good thing. Right. <laughs> and these practices, again, even a closed communion, which we've done other shows specifically on that. So I'll just simply reference for deeper conversation on that there of how even closed communion, once again, it's a gospel thing, right? It's for the consolation of the conscience that we observe and practice this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, seven through nine really does bring out the fact that divine service is a matter of gospel and not law. Uh, Pre-Reformation, Rome treated it very much like the law. People were afraid. I mean, people wouldn't take communion. They'd go, and at best, they would look at it as it was elevated rather than partake of it because they were scared. And the Lutherans, the evangelicals, our forebears in the Reformation said, no, this is the gospel. This is for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we say the words of institution clearly so you can hear that. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, that was being said silently by the pastor. So again, it is about consolation. It is about forgiveness. And that's why we are sticklers about this. It's not, le it's not legalism at all. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, we want reverence and we want these ceremonies to teach people what they need to know about Christ precisely because we are evangelicals and we're about the gospel, not about burdening people with the law. Absolutely. Very well said. I'm going to push us forward here and read lines 10 through 13 here and have us discuss this as we continue to make our way through here. It is clear that for a long time, the most public and serious complaint among all good people is that the Mass has been base and profane by using it to gain filthy wealth. And they cite 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Everyone knows how great this abuse is in all the churches. They know what sort of men say Masses for a fee or an income, and how many celebrate these Masses contrary to canon law. Paul severely threatens those who use the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And that's a quote from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, when our priests were warned about this sin, private masses were discontinued among us, since hardly any private masses were celebrated except for the sake of filthy gain. All right, thus far, Article 24 on the Mass from the Augsburg Confession here. All right, Pastor Bean, go ahead and get us into, uh, they, they, they get a little pushy here, you know, and, you know again, kind of atypical, but, you know, as, as you set us up here for Melanchthon, I think they're kind of a little rightly angry, right? You know, that you, you've said some nasty things about us, but here's the reality is that you've got some nasty things going on with the regards to the Mass. So get us into some of this here. Absolutely. This is the main thing that the Lutherans actually changed, uh, one of the big points. Masses at the time, you know, we think of the divine service. It's a church service. It's what you go on Sunday. It's a public event, uh, public worship. But most of the masses being said at the time of the Reformation in the Roman church were not public affairs at all. In fact, a lot of the big cathedrals had these little stalls set up, up and down the length of them. They were like little private altars. And you had these sort of little functionary. They were called, uh, Luther called them mass priests. All they did was rattle off masses as quickly as they could privately. So there was no sermon. There's nobody even listening. The pastor's just saying a mass. Why? Well, he's being paid to do it. Why would people pay for that? Well, because they thought that this is how they're going to get out of purgatory. So everything keeps getting back to justification, right? If your doctrine of justification is messed up, then how you worship, what the worship service is going to look like gets messed up. So what happens is Melanchthon, and, and I love how he says this, everybody knows it, right? We all know it. We're all talking about it. Everybody in the university, all the clergy, we all know this is rotten. We've complained about it for centuries, and now we're going to put it on the table, and we're really going to talk about it. We're going to say the unmentionable thing to the emperor here. This is rotten, and we all know about it. It's all about raking in money. It's filthy lucre, filthy wealth. It's base and profane, and profane should have nothing to do with the sacrament. We call it the holy sacrament, holy, holy communion. Holy is the very opposite of profane. And so citing 1 Corinthians 11, this is like unto the Corinthians who were misusing the holy sacrament. And so uh, notice Melanchthon draws a distinction between their clergy and our clergy, our priests, he says. Um, it's so funny. Sometimes people will say, well, Lutherans don't have priests. We have ministers or something instead. But of course, our confessions use the traditional terminology often. So our priests were warned about this sin. And then when, once we became aware of it in our circles, in the so-called Lutheran circles, in the evangelical circles, we got rid of the private masses because there's no reason for them, right? Our practical theology, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is based on the theology of the Holy Scriptures, what we believe, teach, and confess. So if you get rid of the belief in purgatory and you get rid of charging people for masses to be said and you get rid of the stalls and all of the sort of bureaucratic clergy rattling off masses, it changes what the liturgy looks like, sounds like, what is emphasized in the liturgy. And so he gets into this. Uh, this is one of the main things of the article that for us Lutherans, the Mass is a public event. It's not a private event. It's a communion. It's a community event. It's we're doing this together, pastor and people. It's not just a, a pastor sitting in front of a stall, you know, running through the motions so that he can be paid for it and the church can be paid for it. And I think that's a really important point that once again brings in some contemporary 
things for us to think about. You know, some of the applications of like, you know, online communion and things like that. You know, this was highlighted and magnified during COVID. And I, you know, I'm very thankful that I was serving rural dual parish in Southern Illinois and the saints followed me on this and everything. I said, you know, we're, we're not going to get into this observance of the private masses and things like that, you know, where it's you just watching me do it or things like that online uh, and you doing it at home. We're certainly not doing that and those sorts of things. It is a public event. And so we need to be gathering together as the church. And I encourage to do that. Now, yeah, we maybe did smaller groups and multiple times and we offered that. Uh, you know, we can take on that form as we were trying to understand what we we're dealing with and all those sorts of considerations fit in, but but we need to be gathering together for this. And so I think, you know, when we understand our confession on this matter, that's going to inform our practice, even when we face other things that maybe seem what, somewhat scary, right, as COVID did in the early days anyway. So, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it, it goes to show you how timely our confessions are, even though we're addressing specifically something that we don't do, you know, the purgatory and the private masses for filthy gain, you know, that's not exactly what's going on, what happened with the COVID, but there is an application here of the necessity of gathering together publicly. It is a public worship service and any attempt to sort of go back to the pre-Reformation days by privatizing it or turning it into a, a work or something of that nature, rather than the gospel that is shared by the church as she gathers around the altar is something that we need to push back against. Absolutely. One other thing I want to highlight with this particular paragraph, these several lines here, is that we also want to be very careful. And this is something that I think has fallen out of disuse in the church, especially among Lutheran circles, is that we, we're also not saying that you can't have kind of special services, if you will, where we would gather together publicly for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So kind of what I have in mind here is probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever been asked to do as a pastor was, you know, not just like a reaffirmation of wedding vows and things like that, but that there was this couple celebrating. This was very early when I was a pastor. This couple were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. You know, that's a, that's a wonderful blessing to have shared wedded bliss for that long. And they said, you know, pastor, could we have a church service? To gather together with our church family and, and with our friends. You know, obviously we practice closed communion, those sorts of things. But can we observe this and mark this blessing that has been in our life by having a service together? And I said, absolutely, right? Now, that is not what we're saying here in the private masses, right? And the thinking is really important there that, you know, if it's done with the intent of you paying me to do a service at, where it's purely a spectator sport, or that you think you gain anything by it. Well, now we have a Reformation issue, right? You know, that, that, that's what we're talking about here with the private masses. But if you want me to have a service where we give thanks to God by celebrating the Thanksgiving meal of the Eucharist and observe this, that's not what we're saying we're against here, right? Yeah, and another, you know, another application of that is when we visit shut-ins. You know, if you visit a person in his or her home and you're celebrating the sacrament, that is not a private mass because there's two of you there. If you were by yourself, for whatever reason, if pastor's home by himself and he consecrates the elements, that's an abuse for whatever his motivation is. But when we are sharing that communion, that community, it can be as little as when two or three gather. It is a gathering, and we do that for the sake of the person who can't make it to the ordinary public 
service held in the church, but that's not what a private mass is. Absolutely. That's an excellent point as well. I'm going to push us forward into the next several lines here. Lots still more to cover, probably about uh, 10 minutes or so here left today. Let's see if we can get it all in. Picking up with line 14 of Article 24 from the Augsburg Confession on the Mass. The bishops were not ignorant of these abuses. If they had corrected them in time, there would now be less discord. But until now, they have been responsible for many corruptions seeping into the church. Now, when it is too late, they begin to complain about the church's troubles. This disturbance has been caused simply by those abuses that were so open that they could no longer be tolerated. There have been great disagreements about the Mass, that is, the sacrament. Perhaps the world is being punished for profaning the Mass for such a long time and for tolerating this in the churches for so many centuries by the very men who were both able and duty-bound to correct this situation. I'm going to pause and just interject there. That was 492 years ago. Imagine today. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, getting back here, picking up line 19. It is written in the Ten Commandments, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain from Exodus 20, verse 7. But since the world began, nothing that God ever ordained seems to have been so abused for filthy wealth as the mass. All right, we'll take it there thus far from Article 24, uh, the Augsburg Confession on the Mass. Uh, once again, definitely highlighting some things. You have profaned the Mass, and I think there's a strong catechetical connection here, obviously citing Scripture, you know, that this is a profanity against the very holy name of God himself that this is being done. Get us into some of this, Pastor Bean. I think we can get through this pretty quickly. This is really a broadside against the bishops, the ones who had oversight and responsibility for correcting these abuses. And he holds the bishops accountable here. He says, this is your fault. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't blame the pastor out there who's doing this. It's coming from you bishops. You're in charge because you are able and duty bound to correct this. You are profaning the mass and tolerating this in the churches. So I, I, again, you know, all of this ruckus that we had recently in our own synod about internet communion. I mean, I think you can substitute district presidents for bishops. District presidents, you have oversight, right? You have episcopate. We don't have, strictly speaking, we don't have consecrated bishops in the Missouri Synod, but we have oversight. We have men who have the responsibility, able and duty bound to correct this situation. So, you know, Melanchthon holds the bishops accountable and we pastors and we lay people need to hold our district presidents accountable. This should not be tolerated for whatever motivation, even for supposedly good motivations. That doesn't matter. This is an abuse. It needs to be abolished, and we need to hold these men accountable for it. Yeah, and we've made this point as well, too, that kind of under the Lutheran structure, we also kind of look at every pastor as being a bishop of that congregation as well. And, you know, not to negate what you just said as well, you know, I, we should expect, and it's part of our cultural influence, that we just we don't have any respect for authority structures at all, unfortunately. And so, you know, even where district presidents, and there were a lot of them that were very faithful in this and did address these matters. And so we commend them for that. Unfortunately, people just kind of do their own thing. And we kind of have a, a structure that kind of allows for that, unfortunately. But, and I think that this is important to highlight, you're not going to be held guiltless pastor or leaders of congregations that are to be spiritual men. We should know what scripture says. We should know what we confess about this. And we need to be very intentional about the way that we conduct ourselves, that we give 
once again, highlighting what they lay out right at the beginning, that we give greatest reverence to this great gift and not be profane, because that's an offense against the word of God. It's literally using the Lord's name in vain, right? As it says there. Absolutely. It's a, it's a vocational issue. The pastor has oversight of the congregation. The district president has oversight over the congregations and over the pastors. And we all have to take responsibility for what our oversight is at, at whatever level. Absolutely. Uh, let's push forward then, uh, picking up with line 21 here of Article 24 on the Mass. An opinion was added that infinitely increased private masses. It states that Christ, by his passion, made satisfaction for original sin and instituted the Mass as an offering for daily sins, both venial and mortal. From this opinion has arisen the common belief that the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing the outward act. Then they began to argue about whether one Mass said for many is worth as much as special Masses for individuals. This resulted in an infant number of Masses. With this work, people wanted to obtain from God all that they needed, and in the meantime, trust in Christ and true worship were forgotten. Our teachers have warned that these opinions depart from the Holy Scripture and diminish the glory of the passion of Christ. For Christ's passion was an offering and satisfaction, not only for original guilt, but also for all other sins, as it is written, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's a quote from Hebrews 10.10. Also, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's a quote from Hebrews 10.14. It is an unheard of innovation in the church to teach that by his death, Christ has made satisfaction only for original sin and not for all other sin. So it is hoped that everybody will understand that this error has been rebuked for good reason. Scripture teaches that we are justified before God through faith in Christ when we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Now, if the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing it, justification comes by doing Masses and not of faith. Scripture does not allow this. All right, I'm going to pause there. So thus far from Article 24 on the Augsburg Confession, that was uh, through line 29 there. Uh, all right, Pastor Bean, a lot going on here. He's really just explaining kind of what their faulty thinking is and why, especially according to Scripture, that it is faulty thinking. Yeah, once again, we're back to justification and how it happens. That's kind of the fount of all of theology and all of the, really the Reformation had to do with a faulty view of justification. So they had developed this thinking that when you're baptized, you get rid of the original sin, but then you rack up more sins and you have to get rid of those sins. And it's a very mechanical kind of thing. So you, you partake in Holy Communion and you go through various other sacraments in order to take care of those sins. When you die, if you got some leftover on your account, then you got to burn them off in purgatory. Well, of course, line 24, these opinions depart from the Holy Scripture. So there's sola scriptura coming across in Article 24. It is the scripture that informs us about word and sacrament, the theology of word and sacrament, and the theology of word and sacrament informs our practice of word and sacrament. And that's really the origin of a lot of this bad theology and bad practice. Um, he doesn't use the Latin term ex opere operato here, but it, it appears in other places in the confessions. This was a common problem in the Roman church at the time. The idea that the sacraments are magic. You don't have to even know what's going on. You don't have to even have faith. It's just like being, you know, you're being blasted with some kind of magic. And they viewed the mass this way. 
And Melanchthon does a masterful job of saying that justification is by faith. And so the mass not only strengthens your faith, it is a confession of the faith. You receive faith by receiving communion and by hearing the word of God. And that's how justification comes, not as sort of a payment by God for you actually doing the work. So it's not a quid pro quo. It's not a tit for tat. You don't get justification in a certain measure based on a certain measure of how many masses you attend. That's not how it works. And really, this is, again, this is one of the central issues that separate us from Rome in our theology and practice of the Mass. Absolutely. Uh, With about four minutes here, I'm actually not going to read the rest of this here, but I want to allow you as our guest today to highlight some things. And so feel free to read a line or two that you want to highlight in this remaining part here. But go ahead and kind of finish out uh, at least the teaching of what's covered here in these last paragraphs in the remaining time that we have here today. Yeah, I I like how he refers to the fathers and to the canons and the practice to show that we are orthodox. We're in Catholic continuity with the church. He quotes Ambrose, because I always sin, I always need to take the medicine, which again shows that the idea of sin and forgiveness, the mass is all about the gospel. Um, He mentions in 34 about having communion every holy day and whenever people ask for it on other days, And he cites in 36 the example of uh, St. John Chrysostom. The priest stands daily at the altar, inviting some to communion, but keeping back others. Again, there's closed communion. That's what we practice as Lutherans. And the orderliness of the liturgy in 37. One person celebrated the Mass from whom the other presbyters and deacons received the body of the Lord. Um, You know, there used, it's not so much anymore, but there used to be kind of a controversy of the pastor communing himself. But It's right in our confessions. We follow the ancient order. The pastor communes himself. He communes his assistants, which generally in the Missouri Synod are laymen who are, we call them elders and they help. And then we then commune the people. There's an orderliness to it. From the Council of Nicaea, let the deacons according to their order receive Holy Communion after the presbyters from the bishop or from a presbyter. And then 40 is really just sort of a recap of everything. The mass among us follows the example of the church. We're not heretics. We're Catholic Christians. We're doing what the church has always done. We keep the public ceremonies. Again, we're not just throwing things out. We're not saying this is too Catholic. We don't genuflect because Catholics do it or whatever. We are Catholic and we retain these things. Um, There is a reduction of the number of masses on account of abuses. Again, getting rid of the private mass. That's one of the main arguments we had with Rome. And then there's this appeal to the precedent that was done in ancient Alexandria about having the scriptures being read and having the rite of Holy Communion and having this done publicly as opposed to these private masses that was an innovation and unscriptural that had developed. Absolutely well said. And you saw highlighted in there several things that we brought up earlier and so forth. You know, again, a repetition that the Lord's Supper is a treasure, and so we celebrate it often. Um, The reason I gave the example earlier, I kind of sold it away early, that we're not talking about, as people request it, that that's not a private Mass, because they even say, you know, that you can ask for it. And I think a good example also with the shut-ins as well, right? You know, that that's kind of what we want. Hey, Pastor, I can't make it. Can you come to me? Can you bring it to me, this great treasure that comforts me and gives me the consolation of Christ? Absolutely. And I also want to make this point just as I bring that in. And I'm sure that you do this as well. And I see this being recovered more and more. When I take that to shut-ins, whether that's in their home, but especially in nursing homes and things like that, 
we also conduct ourselves with great reverence there because that also makes a confession of what we believe. Um, just earlier today, I was visiting a shut-in at a nursing home and the nursing home's chaplain, not an LCMS chaplain, I mean, it was dressed like a slob and everything and visiting. And it's like, I wouldn't have even known they were a chaplain. I would have thought they were like the cleaning person or something like that. Well, you know, that says something about what you think about your position as you're visiting and also what you think about this person just on, on a personal level, right? Absolutely. And so as we conduct ourselves in all of the places that we conduct the ceremony of the mass, right, also gives great confession and witness to our faith as well, right? Absolutely. Summa reverentia. Absolutely. All right. Uh, with just one minute here, go ahead and give us your parting thoughts here for today. Well, once again, I think this is a very timely topic. I remember in a discussion with a pastor about contemporary versus traditional worship, I raised the issue of Article 24, and all he could say was it's no longer binding on Lutherans. And I, I didn't get that memo. I, I didn't get that exception in my ordination vows. It is just as important today as it was during the Reformation. And uh, imagine thinking that things like reverence and teaching the people what they need to know about Christ non-verbally is somehow not applicable to us today. I think it's more applicable now than ever as we're bombarded with all kinds of information overload and contrary voices and contrary confessions. I think Article 24 takes on a new urgency today. And I thank you very much for having this topic and having this discussion and inviting me on to talk about it. Absolutely. That is well said. And I might add also, as we're bombarded by a lot of practices in our culture that teach very anti-Christian messages, that's all the more reason, right, to be distinct in our practices that point us to Christ so that we do distinguish ourselves from the world. And that's a great reason to not follow the worldly practices and look like the world in our celebration of the Mass, right? All right, next week we will look at Article 25 on Confession for today. Thank you to Pastor Larry Bean for joining us for Concord Matters and teaching us this Lutheran Confession on the Mass from Article 24 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us again here today, Pastor Bean. Thank you, Pastor Smith. Peace be with you. All right, and thank you also to our underwriter, Wicking Vicar. Check out their performance clerical wear at wickingvicar.com. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>